everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today we are honored to have Phil Jordan on the podcast. Now, Phil, your participation has been recommended by many uh, for the outstanding work that you did at Soldier Hollow, and in fact, just yesterday, we had Carl Schwallow on the podcast, and he had a lot of fond memories of working for you and the team there at Soldier Hollow. So thank you so much for joining, Phil. Welcome. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for the opportunity. It's, it's, it's been fun listening to all of our, our stories of some of the best years, the best times together. Yeah, it's been a huge amount of fun. Thank you again so much for coming on. Um, why don't you tell us where you're joining us from? Sure. Uh, like many of us at home, or the home office uh, here in Hebrew. Uh, which ironically is is only uh, a, a ver- small distance away from Soldier Hollow. I get to see it across the valley in Midway. Uh, ironically, um, when I came uh, to Utah for the games, uh, we decided, my wife and I, to live and rent at uh, Kimball Junction. And it was a good Midway point between downtown Salt Lake and the venue uh, in Midway. Uh, when we uh, left and then came back to Utah uh, in 2005, uh, only a couple of years after the games, uh, we decided to move here to Hebrew uh, uh, temporarily while building a home, which we never built. Uh, but we ultimately, ultimately then uh, bought a home here in Hebrew. And so we've been here in Hebrew since 2005 when I got back uh, from being gone after the games. Wow. Well, Heber is one of the most beautiful valleys, I think, on the planet. It is so gorgeous. The view of Timpanogos from there is absolutely amazing. Now, aside from maintaining your home, your permanent residence there in Heber, what are you working on professionally? Well, so um, as I came back into the area and with the opportunity uh, uh, that was at Salt Lake County uh, to work as part of the um, um, county's ownership and operation of their downtown arts and culture venues, where I was a division director uh, from 05 to just recently retired, I um, was commuting, as it were, on a regular basis. So I know a lot about the ride between Heber and Salt Lake, um, but now moved into consulting in the same uh, more or less, I would say, venue development and construction specific for arts and performance venues. So um, luckily enough, I've, I've got a couple of people that continue to be interested in my help. So I've started a little consulting business out of my house. Well, this arts and culture business has been certainly impacted by a virus that's going around these days. Any particular impacts on the work that you're doing? Well, uh, as it turns out, uh, design and construction has really continued full force, which has been an interesting phenomenon. Um, but on the other hand, I think it has to do with the, the fact that we're generally 12 to 18 months ahead of uh, uh, the actual work in terms of contracting and, and getting work done. I mean, sometimes a building can take two to three years to design and get it coming out of the ground. But um, yeah, I, I've been fortunate that uh, and I'm knocking on everything. You can hear that wood I'm knocking on that. Uh, it's been, it's been good. Uh, I would say that it's dramatic for all of us in the, in the particularly sports and entertainment industry. Um, our venues are the first to close and, and probably will be the last to open. So we're at a place where particularly those that are more fragile in the nonprofit performing arts world, rather than the full force of, of commercial you know, productions or seriously, even for many degrees, sports and uh, sports venues. Uh, we're, we're at a time where it's going to take a lot of creativity for us to 
be able to reassure people it's safe to come back when we find out a way of working with uh, a vaccine and understanding how that impacts us in gathering together. Uh, we've had active conversations uh, at the design level of how to redesign or maybe design new buildings so that we're more you know, socially dis physically distant and be able to address with you know, a lot of the, the standardization that we now have for we're becoming experts in basically keeping people healthy in our venues uh, from viral infections. And that's something we never were prepared to do, nor are we. We are becoming experts at it, but I'm not quite sure what that means. As far as designing, we decided basically these building forms have existed for centuries. We're not going to suddenly redesign, you know, stadia or arena and performing arts theaters. We're going to have to figure out a way once we have a vaccine of keeping people feeling, you know, that they can be trusted. Well, and that's the most important thing, right, is helping people feel confidence in what is being done so that they feel comfortable to come and witness uh, greatness in a venue again. And hopefully that happens sooner rather than later for all of our sakes. Well, and, and those lifetime memories of being with friends and family, you know, we often say it in the last several years that very often it's not so much what we're going to, to but rather who we're going with. That's why our buying patterns in terms of purchasing tickets have moved to such a short period before an event is that very often it's driven by, you know, the will and want of being with somebody as much as, as going to go see an event. Certainly there are those events that we definitely buy years ahead of time that we have to, or months ahead of time that we want to go see, but very often it's who you're going with is more important than what you're seeing. So a lot of our, our buying and about that experience of being together side by side and enjoying it is very much the vital part of, of what we do. Well, this podcast is a testament to people wanting to be together as so many people have shared their memories of the relationships that they forged during the Salt Lake 2002 games and who they celebrated those games with. It's been a lot of fun to hear all these stories. And I'm so excited to have you come on and share your stories as well and add to our, I've, I've used this word before, but this tapestry of memories. Um, mm -hmm. Every every episode, I think this tapestry becomes more complete and it becomes more beautiful. So thank you so much for coming on. And I think it's time to go ahead and reflect back on Salt Lake 2002. So, Phil, maybe you can tell us uh, just exactly what it was that you were doing, what you were working on before Salt Lake and how you found yourself in the committee. Uh, probably as succinct as possible, I, I'll, I'll try to, to snapshot that. I was lucky enough to um, been part of a, a group of individuals that were pulled together in Las Vegas to do a new form of water entertainment with Cirque du Soleil. So I had uh, been deeply in and was deeply involved with working with show producers and directors and designers uh, in Boston, where my dear friend Ron Cameron and I got to know each other over many years. Um, I was more on the side of, of nonprofit or, or dealing with uh, theatrical presentations. Ron was deeply involved with music, as, as you know, and live event work. Um, but we were very much, uh, uh, I would say, peers in Boston doing that kind of work. And as a connection happened again, when uh, at the end of, of a very long and very uh, uh, arduous period of time of crafting and building a show called O at Bellagio, where I was involved with an amazing team putting an amazing spectacle together, which is still up and running. It's still one of the most successful shows on the Strip um, in Las Vegas. It's a water show uh, specifically. Um, I had the opportunity to check back with Ron, who had slipped into 
my job uh, as I left full time, which is at Boston Ballet Company. So I started in the show entertainment business and drifted into ballet of all things. Um, I am not a dancer and certainly don't look like a dancer, nor, you know, but I certainly know a lot more about uh, uh, dance and music than I ever thought I'd have in my early career. Uh, you can sing a, or play a few tunes of Tchaikovsky and I can tell you exactly what section of what ballet it is. And that's kind of sick to be able to still be able to do that. But, but having done three Swan Lakes and two Nutcrackers and a bunch of other work, I had sort of run the gamut and had the opportunity to run away and joined the circus and moved to Las Vegas. I was there for two and a half years as part of the genesis of that show, well ahead of its opening. I did 976 performances in two years of that show and had kind of like the reason I didn't go to Broadway is I didn't, I was not interested in doing the same show over and over and over again. I called Ron back and said, you know, how's it going in Boston? How do you like Boston Ballet? Because as I say, he had moved into that job. He had great success in the years that he was at Boston Ballet. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm actually going to head to uh, to uh, to Salt Lake City where there's going to be an Olympic Games. And uh, through his relationship working with Doug Arnott, who is a very much a center point for many of us uh, in the event business, as I got to know uh, and really regard working well with, with Doug. Um, so as it turned out, uh, I said, well, wait a minute. Is there, are there any gigs up there in Salt Lake? He goes, well, I think there are a few. Why don't you be interested? And I said, yeah. So I did a a, uh, an early phone interview. Uh, and then I flew up, uh, from uh, the short trip from Las Vegas to Salt Lake. Uh, in the, I forgot what time I was able to middle of the winter. I had not been to Salt Lake ever. Um, and I had, uh, as I recall, a kind of like a, a speed dating set of interviews where in the course of an hour and a half, I met, uh, uh, Alan Brooks, who ultimately was very much part of our, our venue management team with hockey, of course, Colin Hilton, who's uh, considered a, a strong friend and mentor. Uh, uh, Finn Gunderson, who comes from the U.S. ski team effort, from, actually from Vermont, who is uh, later uh, uh, very much at the downhill venue, very much part of the U.S. ski team. Uh, and then finally, Doug Arnott. So I had those four interviews in one hour. I felt it really was like a speed dating. I flew back to Salt Lake and, and uh, had a phone call from Doug. And he said, well, we'd like to bring you on board. There are three venues that need venue managers um, and, uh, you know, you can have your choice. I said, well, what are they? And he said, well, there's the metals Plaza downtown, which is going to be, you know, a place where there's the awards every night and there's a, a, sh- a rock show and fireworks and, and it's in the great downtown area. And, and then there's snow basin, which is where all the, the men's and women's downhill will be. And then there's this venue called Soldier Hollow, which is out in uh, in Midway, which is cross country. I said, well, I can, that makes it pretty simple. I've been a cross country skier for many years out of Boston, up in the New England area. I love cross country skiing. And I said, Doug, I'm coming off one of the most technically complex performances shows in the world with O. Uh, so the last thing I want to have in my Olympic experience with all due respect to the medals plaza is, is another show. So I want to be more deeply involved with sport and, uh, and Soldier Hall. So that's, that's the story of me flying up of, of the 10 competition venues. Three of them were being managed by us sports folks who are, uh, sorry, show folks who were really more involved with shows than show business than with, uh, uh than with actually sport venue management. Uh, but I, you know, uh, coming up and into the games and moving forward from being directly related to, uh, you know, performers, directors, designers, uh, and moving much more into front of house and, and spectator services, accreditation, food and beverage, transportation, 
Um, I found the great analogy and great connection of all those different services to what we do in the theater world or in the arena and stadium world. Um, so I, uh, I think the transition was relatively natural and, and, and certainly many adjustments that, that my team had to help me with, with not understanding what it was to run a big sport venue. But at, we consider the Olympics to be essentially sports as a big show. Well, it's so interesting that you say that you wanted to kind of get away from the show aspect and come into the sport aspect to get into Soldier Hollow. We've had several people like Ray Grant and others on the podcast saying how enjoyable the cultural elements at Soldier yeah. Hollow were. I want to yeah. get to those in a minute, but before we do, I want to come back to you joining the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. So what exactly or when exactly was it that you ended up joining SLOC? October of 2000 uh, is when I came on board. Okay, October of 2000. And then you mentioned that you put up your your shingle in Kimball Junction. So you you were living yeah. there in Kimball Junction. Yeah. Okay. yeah. My wife was a, is a stage manager. And, and so she was uh, uh, sort of didn't didn't have a, lot, a, a tremendous success in Las Vegas. It was not a place where she had killed the creative creativity as she had in Boston as a stage manager. So we met, fell in love and married now 40 something years. Uh, we're uh, very much were the husband and wife team in, in Boston. She uh, uh, moved over to concierge work and went, landed uh, at Marriott in Park City, uh, helping essentially their, some of their properties there with concierge work. So it was better for us to live. And as I said, the location that I knew I was going to be going to Midway and it was going to be Salt Lake. So it's about halfway. So yeah, Kimball Junction. All right. Well, why don't you tell us about the early days of joining the Salt Lake Organizing Committee? You're here. You know that you're going to be running Soldier Hollow. What was the approach that you took to planning out that venue? Well, I, I think for many of us that that were coming on board after so many years of great work and getting the games and planning the venues and, and moving things forward uh, with such complexity, because when you talk about all those, it's 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 interesting for me now having opened uh, several new theaters, uh, both previously and then after games, to think that, you know, after the torch lights the cauldron, the next morning you open 10, 12, 15 new buildings at the same time. And if you've ever opened a new building, it's, you know, very synonymous to, you know, having a baby. Now, not that I've ever had a baby, but I could tell you, it just feels the same in terms of all the excitement, readiness, and then you just deal with what you have in front of you. Um, I became very aware that the, 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 the direction that was being given and taken is that, that the experience that would go from one venue to the next venue would be the same for each of our, any of our patrons. So while we had very division, different sports and divergent environments, the the idea that we delivered on was that there would be a quality games experience for the both for the athletes certainly but but uh, for the for the public and so I got that message loud and clear as I walked it felt like I jumped onto a moving train and that's exactly what it was um, the venues have been pretty much uh, started their their major build outs for the big infrastructure such as the stadium riser seating systems certainly sport had been on board for many years in getting the venues to, to sort of work within the regimen of the most important part, which is that the games would be of the standard. Um, we call homogenization of the venues, making sure that it wasn't going to be one easy games one year and a hard games four years later. I began to learn a lot more about the regimen of that, uh, of sport driving the boat, if you will. And yet we at venue management 
really responsible for uh, what could be or is a majority part of, of, of the public experience involved in that and being responsible for the safety of the public, which ultimately, because of 9-11, our lives changed dramatically a year later. But all to say, to answer your question, I, I felt as if I had uh, immediately been uh, so fortunate uh, and and uh, flattered and honored to be selected to come into being with the group. And as you walked into the group and began to hear what came out of their mouths and or what was written on paper, you quickly understood that this 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 boat's this train's moving fast. And uh, uh, I had clear memory of asking a question of HR when I first came on board and said, uh, uh, just so I know, because, you know, I've, I've hired team members myself. And of course, I've been able to move around from job to job, you know, help me understand what would be considered to be a uh, um, HR component here in terms of understanding if, if I'm not in alignment with uh, with the organization, is there some way in which I would understand that through coaching or through through progressive discipline, you know, so that I just don't find myself, you know, uh, confused? Can you help me understand that? And they, there was a person there cleared their throat and said, well, I'll tell you what, Mr. Jordan, uh, uh, when you are asked to 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 address your your behavior, you should just take it as probably the only time you will actually hear about that. It's a very dynamic environment. We don't give warnings. It's you're there. You, you'll know when you're not in alignment. Just pay attention. So I just kind of shut up and went, whoa, I guess I better I guess I better uh, keep my my eyes open and my ears uh, open as well. So. Uh, I think that's a good part about the organization committee itself was that um, we had incredible uh, quality of, of dynamic people working th- to do the best work of their lives. And I never felt it arduous or did I feel as if I was being pushed into anything. Uh, but at the same time, I was being pulled by a remarkable group of people that I was so proud to be part of. Well, let's talk about the team there for a minute. Organizing committees are interesting entities, right? Because you as the venue manager don't necessarily have carte blanche to pick all of your team members. The organizing committee starts out as a functionally a functional based organization, you know, divided into functional areas who hire all their people and they make assignments as to who goes out to which venue. And then you have this team. I've heard from other people on this podcast that the Soldier Hollow team was exceptional. And I'm curious, what was the approach that you took to taking these people from various functional areas and creating a real venue team out of them? Well, to your point, um, yeah, it was a little strange that we didn't get a bunch of resumes and get to select individuals out of the 22 functional areas. Uh, just the opposite. The functional area managers were responsible for assigning what they consider to be their best team leaders uh, to the venues. I, I, I think mo- the, the word and the or the the thought that was from the beginning to the end is trust um, to trust that these individuals were selected by managers that really know a lot more about those functional areas than any than me. And certainly what we all know is that we're far better together than we are individually. And I think that theme was from day one to day end that we just really respected and appreciated what each of us brought to the team. What they needed was coordination. And and the team that was around me directly, the Janine Fulton, Krami, 
and and Andy Williams, uh, the three of us were essentially uh, that core of the venue management team for the venue. Um, uh, we came together sort of slowly since I got there in October. Uh, Janine had been there for several, I think at that point, maybe 18 months to even 24 months ahead of time, helping the organizing committee in a variety of ways. Um, but she really wanted to be on a venue. And so she brought a lot of of great resource uh, for me to understand how the organizing committee works and worked, uh, but also uh, just understand how you know, big sport events where she's had previous background in doing that. Andy Williams brought as the venue operations. So Jane was the assistant. Um, uh, I almost consider, really consider her the associate general manager. Um, then Andy Williams as the, as the venue uh, operations uh, uh, manager really brought a large uh, background of university sport uh, event management, and uh, and very much has has succeeded in a great career, uh, still today doing that work. Um, I think the answer to your question is just that. Uh, 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 great leaders chose great people to to be on Soldier Hollow, who they knew needed to be somewhat more flexible. The the venue itself is enormously challenging because of the way it's spread out. Um, it's also challenging in that we had almost 30% of the medals of the games at Soldier Hollow. You didn't know that with Nordic combined biathlon and cross country. Um, so we had a tremendous amount of activity going back and forth. And I think the functional managers knew that when they selected those team members, um, as we pulled together, I think that, um, uh, we found, uh, immediately just a significant amount of respect for who we were and are and what we're bringing to the venue. And I think that really is what came through out the entirety of the experience is the willingness to be patient with each other um, when our patience was completely run out because we just trusted each other so, so much. Well, it's interesting you mentioned challenges with the venue being that it is spread out, that there's a lot of competition going on all the time there. So it's very, very active. Another challenge is location. It's yes. not as close to Salt Lake City as some of the other venues were. And so that either put a burden on people for, to have very long commutes or they had to kind of relocate temporarily to Heber to help uh, run the venue. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the location and, and sure. how you were able to, to staff up uh, during the games and, and have people closer to the venue? Well, I don't think we ever were closer to the venue. Many of us were commuting on a regular basis from mostly the Kimball or from down in, in the, uh, the valley. Uh, yeah, I, these Nordic venues and all the Alpine venues actually have to be up in the mountains, as it were. And and I think Slock was so smart in as much as we were drawn to the the little big Cottonwood Canyons for those venues is so sad with some of the access issues that we couldn't see the games. I hope one day that when we have games come back, that those venues would be able to be engaged. But because of the nature of them, there are so many Olympics, Winter Olympics that have occurred in places where they're just impossible to get to that the public actually never made it. Um, they just get the athletes and the Olympic family and you'd get media press and, and broadcasters back and forth all the time because you didn't have another Olympic village. And that became a really big issue for Soldier Hollow. There was great movement within the Nordic sport uh, countries um, for skiing uh, to be able to actually have a second Olympic village up here, uh, particularly around the homestead, if you're familiar with that location here in the Valley. Um, and of course, after 9-11, we, we, I think we clearly didn't have the resources, but we really made the right decision by keeping everybody at the Olympic Village um, in down the valley. So long story short, uh, Mountain Dell was the location that was going to be the cross-country venue. 
Uh, and and biathlon was going to have its own venue, uh, which is typical within the games that they're not combined at all. In fact, we had both sports really looking at each other like, you know, two unwanted folks going out to a Saturday night date that got stuck together, both biathlon and cross country. Um, but they did marry the couple together very well. Ultimately, I don't think they actually wanted to do it again, but I think they have and will want to have to do it again because it worked really well. That was a big challenge for us and the sport teams is to be able to make sure that worked. But Mountain Dell didn't have the ability to really reassure the snow. The, the big concern we had in February is, you know, we can have heat wave and, and actually lose snow coverage, particularly the thinner levels where you're not, uh, uh, you know, able to have to carry that much snow, uh, natural snow. Um, Snowmaking then became a, a really big investment for the Artisan Committee. And obviously all those decisions have been made before I got there. But I, I could tell you that having the, one of the first snow, you know, Nordic venues with snowmaking, uh, even today, is quite remarkable. And uh, I'm still part of volunteering to, to Soldier Hollow as it exists today as part of the Olympic, Utah Olympic Legacy Foundation. Um, I teach skiing over there uh, in, in terms of just being able to help. Uh, everybody enjoy cross-country skiing. And I will tell you that snowmaking system is incredibly important. So that location had a lot to do with that. We actually had snowmaking reserves, which is a funny story up on Strawberry. Um, the intention was that if we ran out of snow, we would cart it down with big 10-wheel construction trucks that we would spray clean from all this dirt to bring good snow in. Uh, so we had a, we had actually a guy up with a trailer making snow uh, for most of uh, the winter leading up to uh, February 2002 uh, and I think that snow finally melted in September of 2002. There was a little bit of snow left up there because man-made snow lasts longer than than natural snow. But um, the location itself couldn't be ultimately the way in which the venue was laid out. John Allberg, who's a sport competition manager, very much a strong, huge leader in Nordic sport in Utah, certainly as an Olympian. And then moving on further, he was actually the venue manager for cross-country, uh, sorry, for biathlon at Vancouver. Uh, and very much involved uh, uh, in, as an Olympian, but also a Utah uh, native Norwegian. He led the effort uh, to be able to select Mountain Dell as part of the bid and then finally to move to Soldier Hollow, the only venue on a Utah State Parks property. Uh, and together with the vision of the State Parks director at that time, Cortland Nelson, with the vision of being able to have that Olympic venue on the Utah State uh, property, uh, Parks property. Uh, it was just really a decision. Uh, the amphitheater setting in which it was set was unique in the fact that everybody could actually see the athletes for a majority of the race. Typically in cross country, they go into the woods and come back out into the stadium, then back into the woods. Across at Soldier Hollow, you could actually see the athletes for the majority of the entire race. So we uh, fell in love with the location. Um, it was a great choice, big investments. Um, it was difficult in the sense of of getting to it only in the sense that thankfully, as you know, the story goes that we had a great amount of snow leading up to games, which saved us quite a bit of money in our budgets for snowmaking or for essentially additional snow resources. And that gave us uh, uh, some additional surplus, which made us a very financially successful games as well. But uh, all to say that uh, the location selection of Soldier Hollow is absolutely a key element in its success. Well, I want to come back to the culture thing because so many people have talked about it. How did this idea come about that you would basically build out this little Western 
pioneer kind of thing uh, mm-hmm. there on the venue because I thought it was wonderful. I remember coming to competition there and seeing it and I loved it. The Western Experience. That's the title it received. Um, well, uh, I would say it starts and stops with the history of Nordic cross-country skiing in the Olympics in that as you follow from games to games to games uh, about Nordic sport, particularly cross-country racing, uh, there's a huge legacy in the Nordic venues uh, area, specifically in Norway and Sweden, Denmark. Little did I know at the time that Italy has such a huge uh, participation and certainly Russia and America. Um, but as the quintessential Olympic Games that are always looked at for many, many years were the games in Lillehammer. And Lillehammer had a uh, particular love because of the nature of, of cross-country being part of their lives. They, they would actually ski from home to work and back home again. I've seen and was able to be there uh, before the games uh, and to see that there are headlamps strapped to their skis so they can see and ski in the dark. You know, I just like, wow, you know, Nordic sport was just in their blood. It was an amazing games. And what happened out of it was the sense that you immersed in the culture of the community. So it was John Alberg uh, as cross country sport manager, you know, certainly with the blessing of Kathy Prisoner, who had been very much part of the whole sport movement of, of the Nordic Games and how we would do well in Nordic specifically. Uh, and then Lyle Nelson, specifically in biathlon and, you know, directed and helped by Max Cobb with the U.S. Biathlon. We all came together with this idea that we could create uh, an opportunity the, the, the person who really spearheaded this is our venue volunteer chairperson, who's a great member of our community today still, Tom Whitaker. And Tom Whitaker, who launched and, and, and who has been and it was the founder of Cowboy Poetry, which you've heard of for many years up in this area, really saw the opportunity. And together with that, with Cortland, specifically Cortland Nelson, recalling how there's an opportunity in the Nordic sport with quite a bit of downtime before or during some of the longer races for there to be a real engagement with our, you know, the culture of the community. So we then hearken to this idea that, that uh, when people come to Soldier Hall or come to Salt Lake 2002, they should have, they'll come from all places in the world. They should have a taste or a flavor of the American West. So that was the kernel of, of the thought. And with support from, from a certainly ultimately coming back to, to, to Frazier and to Mitt, and, and to all of the group that would allow us to be able to then take a piece of territory uh, on the venue, on the entry, ingress, egress uh, approach, and turn it into essentially a, 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 an activity zone, if you will, um, then, then the kernel of that idea was born. That opportunity to build the venue as an entertainment sort of, shall we say, um, or not entertainment as much as a cultural destination as being the place in which you get a taste of the American West Western experience was never have occurred without the support of both Frazier and, and specifically Frazier Bullock and Jim Brown. Uh, and while Kathy and sports specifically, John and, and, and Lyle really supported it in evoking this Nordic environment, but they really wanted with Cortland Nelson specifically and Tom Whitaker's support to, to making it be a taste of American West, it never would have occurred without without support from particularly Frazier and from from Jim Brown. But the tremendous support we had from from areas such as the U.S. Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, uh, the National Forest Services, um, and certainly the state of Utah, then then other areas just participating, particularly 
you know, looking at what happened with Forest Cooch and with the Utah uh, Native American uh, uh, people and their their interest of being on a venue and locating the opportunity, not only through the opening and closing ceremonies, but also here at Soldier Hollow. But not least of all, of course, the fact that we had the, uh, the opportunity to celebrate the Mormon pioneers and the story of how they came to the area. So all of that was sort of in a Michigats collector. And then we decided the best thing for us to do is plant it as we could between the approach where the bus drop off loop was you know, located on the venue and the walk into the venue itself. So um, our cowboy greeters uh, created legendary memories with their duster coats and their guitars and you know, uh, certainly the the Wild West mountain men created a lot of issues with me related to to security. But ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I want to bring my musket into the venue. Right. <laughs> yeah. That was OK until September 11th. Then things changed. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? What were some of the changes uh, following the tragedy of September 11th? Well, for all of us, it was it was we thought we were next. Actually, that in that same day, we thought you know that that there was planes going to be flying into the Wells Fargo Tower, and that you know somehow the Olympics were going to be a target. Of course, that was the big concern following that. Um, I'm sure everyone, and I've heard it on your podcast, and, and certainly it's just the way it is, is it com- completely shifted our focus, and yet it didn't. Um, I think we found strength in what I think you had asked and I had responded, the trust we had in each other. My, you know, my job moved dramatically from, you know, trying to keep, you know, the whole thing moving forward. And as I said, our role as venue managers was coordination and public safety, first and foremost. Then it, it became more paramount than ever. Um, I had clear memory of I was clearly getting involved in the security side before 9-11, but uh, the face of those individuals with Secret Service or with, with uh, um, certainly CIA and related to ultimately the UOPSIC, which is, of course, the Utah Olympic Safety, you know, ultimately all those faces sort of shifted and changed quite a bit. Uh, we got certainly a lot more of them. And then finally, when we had to have the resources of the Army and the DOD to be able to do the actual vehicle screening, um, that changed my job uh, from literally, you know, helping everybody to just one thing, which was getting people onto the venue. So I you know, turned to Janine and Andy and said, you know, look, we've done test events. We didn't have 25,000 people a day, but we had several thousand during test events in 01. And that's you know, getting ready for the games. Uh, and the story that's told about our test events is legendary. We had great test events. But as we moved forward, it, it was very simple. I just turned to Andy and Janine and said, you know, take the ball and run the venue. I have to go down to the venue screening area and see if I can get the athletes. As you may or may not know, we had 700 cross-country athletes, each with, I think, an average of 1.7 support people each. So do the math. And then uh, an additional 700 athletes in uh, cross-country biathlon. So we have 1,400 athletes. Nordic Combined sort of came on and came off the venue a lot based on the fact they were ski jumping at, at uh, Olympic Park. But all that, those three sports meant that there were constantly people coming on and off the venue. If they weren't competing, they were training. And training was almost two-thirds of our every day was training, not actual competitions. But we always generally averaged two comps a day. So we, we did not uh, essentially purge the venue and have a different a different audience for each event. We were able to actually see the wisdom to having people you know, be able to stick around. So that helped us in what we call different sessions every day. 
But uh, there were different ticket events, but we didn't necessarily have to completely clear the venue out in the morning and bring a different audience in in the afternoon. You've got the 17 days of competition there, and then you transition over to Paralympic Games. So talk to us a little bit about transitioning to Paralympic Games because it, you know, it was one of the venues where you had Paralympic competition. It's also a little later in the year and it's a little warmer as it's happening in March rather than February. So tell us a little bit about the Paralympic aspect. Well, I think first and foremost, we were one of three uh, Paralympic venues uh, of the 10 competition venues. Only three of them were para. Um, I think I think from the beginning and, and now even in hindsight, we were very proud to be a, a Paralympic venue. We, we believe that we were creating an opportunity for not just the athletes, but the public to understand and comprehend the breadth of the bravery of those athletes to, you know, to actually to not succumb to their disabilities, but rather to raise above it and, and to show the true the courage that they bring to the venue. And I think what we got into the sport, um, as far as the technical side of the answer to your question, I think that Slock had a very clear direction uh, from sport both John Alberg and, and Lyle Nelson completely engaged and immersed in para and Paralympics. They, they brought it as a, a paramount, uh, pardon, the, pardon the use of para there. But um, we were, from the beginning, given a really solid direction that this is not just something else we do. It's really part of who we are and, and who we are as a venue. So the whole team, uh, 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 with one or two exceptions, was trained up to do both events. We absolutely looked at the venue overlays as being one venue. Um, certainly because there were a lot less people coming, we were, had the ability of, of saving resources that were just going to be wasted otherwise. So we did much more of say removal than we had did any kind of addition in the transition period. Uh, so it was kind of like an early loadout for the whole venue, if you will. Um, but by no means was it anything other than getting what was working so well by the time we finished games uh, to be able to turn over to para. But again, we we faced, uh, and to this day, I, I think that we created incredible access for many, many individuals that had accessibility concerns to coming to the games. Um, you know, having wheelchairs outdoors in snow was our, became our religion, if you will, of being able to work with uh, uh, all patrons, regardless of their own disabilities. Because you may imagine there's, there's a lot of folks come to Paralympic Games that are disabled themselves. But as it were, uh, we just wanted to make sure that we were really at a place to be continuing very welcoming, mostly to certainly the athletes, because there's a real shift in their needs, the physical needs. Um, but at the same time, recognize that um, we really had an opportunity and we took advantage of it. I think the Paralympic Games were astounding, uh, outstanding and uh, just amazing experience. So, Phil, your tenure with the Salt Lake Organizing Committee comes to an end. Your job is finished. You've delivered amazing uh, games there in Soldier Hollow. What was next in your journey? And how did the Salt Lake Games help influence the rest of your career? Well, that's, that's a loaded question there. Uh, well, um, yes, I mean, I, I, Soldier Hollow is and was, uh, and today is is a very, very successful Nordic venue. Um, and I'm extraordinarily proud to be part of uh, that team and to be part of what we were able to accomplish both as games, but also at that venue. 
Um, I was uh, and have continued to be, you know, a, a showbiz entertainment person. That's, so going back to a Western experience, I, I think that that tied some of the it together when Lyle and John came to me and said, so Mr. Vegas, what can you do here to help us get uh, our arts and you know, our cultural experience up at the Western experience? So I tried to not make it, you know, a Vegas experience as it were. Uh, I went back to Vegas. Um, certainly uh, as it turned out, I had an opportunity to work with Celine Dion, uh, at a new show that was being created, uh, with her for her at Caesar's palace. Um, uh, I decided Celine's team had been, had, as you may or may not know, had been with her most of her career. She has a very small team that had been with her since she's a teenager and started. Um, the show itself was, uh, from the same director that did, oh, at, at Bellagio, Cirque du Soleil. Um, and then he as well moved to uh, did a, another water show, so a second water show called La Rev uh, at the Wynn Resort. So I had the opportunity to move back to uh, Tinseltown and uh, to be part of, uh, of those shows. Um, you know, and then at the end of that, I had another opportunity to go to Macau and to be part of a third water show with the same director. And that's when I got a phone call. So I got a phone call from my dear friend, Chris Crowley who is another venue manager uh, for, of course, the uh, PCMR venue. And we had gotten to know each other uh, really well. And uh, as things moved on, uh, I was he, I got a phone call from him saying, what are you doing right now? And I said, well, as it turns out, I'm finishing my second water show, and I'm thinking about going to Macau of all places, but I really don't want to. He goes, well, what did you think about coming back to Salt Lake? So I, I really was like, what are you talking about? I had bought three acres of property on the way back to uh, Las Vegas for the third time. Uh, Cause I didn't move to, to Vegas to do the Celine show, right? but I did move everything to do the water show at uh, La Rev. I was planning, I was teed up to be the general manager for that show for several years. That job shifted and changed internally within the win organization. And there I am without a job again. I was like, well, um, I don't know. What do you got? Because well, Salt Lake County has an opportunity to, uh, put in place, uh, or as I am, as Chris was at the time, the division director for Salt Lake County uh, Center for the Arts. And so I said, what's that? I had very little to do with arts and culture in, in my business of coming into the games in Salt Lake at all. Like when I was in Salt Lake for Olympics, I was up in Soldier Hollow and dealing with biathlon across country and Nordic combined. So I got to interview for that job, uh, came up and I had uh, 15 years of pretty remarkable time uh, helping build uh, the new Eccles Theater on Main Street in Salt Lake City, uh, working with an amazing team uh, at Salt Lake County uh, to do expansions of their ticketing services, the Symphony Hall at Abravanel to do some work there, uh, the Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center, and then the renovation of the Capitol Theater with the birth of a, of a new facility for Ballet West was the main one of the, my main projects, along with the new Eccles Theater on Main Street. So it created a legacy of of I guess games was brought me to Utah has brought me the love of Utah and to being here and uh, being able to work within my craft and, and more importantly, work with incredible teams, um, which I think going back to your question about how Salt Lake and working here has changed my life. Uh, I think in many respects it is to do with all the people that you're reintroducing to so many that, that bring a, a fondness in my heart. Um, but also recognizing just the major impact that we all had from each other uh, as being inspired people at the right place at the right time and trying to recreate that 
is my mantra, you know, to recreate that in the teams in Vegas or the teams back in Salt Lake uh, with, with Salt Lake County. Um, I think that, again, it comes back to what can happen when you really work with great people. And, and as a leader, you trust them and, and see what you can do to help them grow individually. And that's our jobs as leaders. Well, as a citizen of Utah, I sincerely thank you for all the wonderful work you did here in Salt Lake County to support the arts. I do appreciate it very much. I have found this conversation fascinating and I could continue it for a long time, but I want to respect your time. And so we're going to come now to our final segment of the podcast, uh, wherein we ask three questions. And the first question I have for you, Phil, is about music. So is there a particular song or a musical artist that whenever you hear them this day or today, um, it takes your mind back to your tenure in Salt Lake 2002? Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, Hotel California comes to mind specifically because I used to listen to that song day in and day out going up and down the hill. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, as, as we, as we find ourselves and and then 15 years of doing it with, with Salt Lake County and living up in Heber, um, that, that song and that band is just, that's it for me. All right. Hotel California by the Eagles. By the Eagles. And of course, just yes. like, uh, just like the lyric says, you can come in anytime you like, but you can never leave. And, uh, you're you stuck here in the state of Utah for the last 15 or so years. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if so. I would, I would extract that lyric though, Christy, but yeah, so. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Let's go to food. Um, was there a place that you liked to eat, whether it was in park city or in Heber or in Salt Lake city during your time working for the organizing committee? Well, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of time, you know, we were, as you mentioned earlier about getting to and from every day, you know, we would get in the van and get in the car and come up from, from Slock at uh, Wells Fargo. Um, there was a, a couple of great restaurants. Unfortunately, they're no longer there across the beer hive, of course, or beehive or beer hive, as we call it now on main street was another place at that time. And I love being there. Uh, it was mostly a, just a, a, a beer and, you know, hamburger joint right there across from Wells, the Wells Fargo building on main street. I forget the name of it now. All right. Well, it doesn't matter if they're not there because I will add them to my to the website. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll have to get back to you with the name. Of it. I'll, I'll, I'll try to remember. That's all but right. We, no we, you know, that's the unfortunate part of it is that you know I came as 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 we were moving from floor to floor to floor within uh, the Wells Fargo building, we get more and more people, but um, there was less and less social time. So unfortunately, it was not that kind of a gig. Well, that's exactly right. That's right. Now, my final question for you. A favorite Olympic memory could be something through competition, could have been behind the scenes, could have been before the games or during the games themselves. Well, um, I think I think for all of us at Soder Hollow, um, there was one moment that we just didn't quite understand at the time, which was the first ever uh, tie uh, in cross country skiing where two athletes had an out skiing for approximately 24 to 25 minutes. Um, and uh, they crossed the finish line within exactly the same moment of a thousandth of a second. Um, it was essentially a 25K race. Uh, both of the athletes from from Norway, Thomas Alsgaard is his name, uh, had been, I think, at four Olympics. Uh, and then uh, and Frode Estil from Norway. Uh, and so we, we were shared... Uh, uh, Kathy Harper, who was our press rep 
representative on the venue team was able to get the photo finish camera and gave each of us a photo. So I'm looking at that photo now on February 14th of 2002 at Soder Hollow, who was the first tie ever in cross country. So there was no bronze medal uh, that day. It was only uh, gold and two silvers. And uh, I think that moment just captured it. Just we all gasped at that moment and said, how is that possible? It is an amazing moment. I appreciate you bringing it back to the fore after many years. And it's a great way to cap off our conversation today. Now, Phil, if people want to know a little bit more about the work that you're currently doing or they want to reconnect and share some Olympic memories with you, what's the best way for them to do so? Um, so email is the best. Um, so my email address is my name uh, in a Gmail, but I lettered, I put XC, which is cross country. So it's P-J-O-R-D-A-N, P-Jordan, letter X, letter C for cross country at gmail.com. PJordanXC at gmail.com. Phil, thank you very much for carving an hour of your day out to share your experience. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll catch you again soon. Phil, again, thank you. Thank you very much. 